and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. It's so nice to have you with me here on Colin or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Fromers.com slash podcast, and everywhere else where this show is heard. I thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. I thought I'd start this show by going over some of the more recent news in travel because it's kind of mind spinning <laughs> what's going on right now in the world of travel. In some quarters, it's going to be much easier to travel soon. In other parts of the world, it's going to be harder. So let's start with the easiest. Last week, Denmark made a startling announcement. They said, as of February 1st, Denmark no longer considers COVID-19 a critical disease and is removing its restrictions. What does that mean? That means that Denmark is now back in 2019. When you go to Denmark, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to quarantine. You don't even have to prove that you've been vaccinated or take a test to show that you do not currently have COVID-19. Is it too early? Uh, <laughs> it makes me a little nervous, but for travelers, it will allow you to plan. If you want to go to Denmark, and it's an extraordinary country, of course, very expensive, but extraordinary, great place to visit, but you, you need to save up, you kind of know what will be waiting for you. There isn't the uncertainty of what kind of tests you'll need if there will be a quarantine. They are promising that all that will be gone. Now, you're going to need a test to get back to the United States, but uh, that probably shouldn't be a, a problem. A, a couple of weeks ago, we wrote about the fact that in many European countries, it's gotten very hard to get tests. There was a shortage uh, around the holidays, but now that seems to have eased. So going to be easier to go there could be harder to go to other parts of Europe. If you want to go to Spain, if you want to go to Greece, if you want to go to France, if you want to go to the Netherlands, not only do you have to prove you've been vaccinated, now you have to prove that you've gotten a booster. And each has different regulations around this. For some, they're saying that so long as you've had the booster within or a vaccine within nine months of travel, you're okay. With others, it's different. So for example, for the Netherlands, you want to go to Amsterdam for a vacation, you have to show that you've been boosted to get out of the quarantine. But you still can actually go into the country without having the booster shot. For other countries, you can't even get into the country right now. Another kind of surprising offshoot of this pandemic is how extraordinarily popular America's type top sites have become. To be specific, I'm talking about the national parks. In 2021, Yellowstone National Park got 1 million more visitors than it did in 2020. That's an extraordinary number. Before that, it took 20 years for their visitor numbers to grow by 1 million. To grow in one year is crazy. And some parks can't handle it. It looks like 
Actually, Yellowstone has been doing a pretty good job of handling the increased visitation. It's easier in Yellowstone because Yellowstone is the size of the state of Connecticut. It's a massive park. So there are lots of places for all those extra people to go. Not so much in Arches National Park in Utah, which is this extraordinarily beautiful desert scape with arches made of rock that have been carved by the elements. Really one of my favorite places I've ever been. Just absolutely gorgeous. A photographer's dream destination. But in Arches, they had to close the gates 120 times in the year 2021 because their parking lots filled up. So because of this huge crush of interest in the national parks, they have reacted by setting quotas and adding reservations to activities, to types of lodgings, to a lot of the elements of a park vacation that never had them before. And the key thing is, you know, I know that most people visit the national parks either in late spring or summer. So why am I discussing it now? Well, many of these reservations had to be made yesterday. For example, Arches. Arches is has kind of a weird system. It is putting aside one day per month to do a lottery for all of the entry, uh, not all, but most of the entry passes. So in January, they gave away 80% of the entry passes for the month of April. In February, they're giving away May. In March, they'll do June. So if you want to go to Arches, and most people want to go go in April because it's very, very hot in the summer months, you're either going to have to get yourself into that lottery or you're going to have to leave it up to chance. They do give away a certain number of passes at 6 p.m. the day before the visit. But it's hard to plan a vacation not knowing if you're going to be able to get one of those passes. On the other side of the country, at Acadia National Park in Maine, there's a very, very popular drive to Cadillac Mountain. People go up there so they can see the sunrise. If you want to make that drive, though, you're going to need a reservation in 2022. Actually, you needed one in 2021 as well. They instituted this last year. And those reservations are selling six months in advance. So August is still open. June and July might be gone. As with Arches, you will be able to get that reservation the night before. Uh, It's the same type of system for Glacier National Park in Montana. Uh, There, there are two very famous roads. But if you want to drive on them, if you want that road trip experience, you're going to have to get it together and do it now. So those are cases where travel's getting a little more difficult, or eh, just needs a little bit more forethought. You're going to need to plan. And all of this material, I should say, is up on fromers.com. It's our raison d'etre to be the place you can go and figure out how to plan for your vacations. And right now, it's much harder to wing it. You really do need to be planning to get places. Now, let's go back on the other side of the scale to the places where it's going to be easier to travel. There's also been a huge influx of travel to the Caribbean. Wrongly or rightly, because it's an outdoor destination primarily, people go there for the beaches, the nations of the Caribbean have been seen by the public as safe 
destinations, and they too have been getting record numbers. In fact, so many people want to go to the Caribbean that more parts of the Caribbean are being opened up with direct flights. So American Airlines just announced that it, for the very first time in history, will be doing daily direct flights to two of the most beautiful, untouched islands in the Caribbean. I'm talking about Anguilla and Dominica. Anguilla is this beautiful island that's only nine miles away from St. Martin, but couldn't be more different. St. Martin is a major cruise ship port. So when you go there, you're often stuck in traffic jams on its roads. And it's a big casino destination and a shopping destination. So there's a lot of feeling of hustle and bustle on St. Martin for the good and the bad. That's If you want a more serene vacation, you go to Anguilla, which has lovely resorts, a Greg Norman-designed golf course, terrific scuba diving and snorkeling, but just doesn't get the crowds because until this year, they never had direct flights from the USA. So, and they don't have a cruise port. So they weren't getting the cruise passengers and they were only getting the people who were patient enough to take several flights to get there. Uh, So that led to a, a really idyllic, uncrowded, laid back Caribbean isle with gorgeous white sand beaches and everything you know and you and everything you want in the Caribbean. Dominica is a little different in that it's not white sand beaches, it's mostly rocky beaches, but it's a beautiful place with lots of really interesting uh attractions in the interior like one of the f- last reservations for the Carib people. The Caribbean was named for them. That's the native uh, nation uh, that once lived across the Caribbean, now only lives in several spots, one of which is Dominica, and they welcome visitors. As well, uh, you'll get to go to um, this boiling lake. Uh, There is uh, geothermal activity on the island, which is very interesting. There's a very dense and pristine rainforest. Uh, So lots to see and do in Dominica. So Dominica and Anguilla are open. What else is open? Well, if you follow the travel news, you'll see that there have been all kinds of headlines blaring, New Zealand is reopening. Uh, New Zealand was a very interesting case study for this pandemic. It's remote enough that it could truly shut its doors. And for two years, it didn't accept any visitors. Even family members were kept apart. So it was big news when New Zealand's prime minister announced, yes, we will be opening in several months. However, unlike most of the rest of the world, they will still be doing a very, very serious quarantine. So for anybody who wants to go to New Zealand for a vacation, that's going to be difficult. You're going to have to wait 10 days in a hotel before you get to see and do any of it. And I don't know about you, but I don't have that much vacation time. Most of us don't. So New Zealand, despite the headlines, remains effectively closed to visitors, sadly enough. So I think I'll stop my monologue for now and bring on my first guest. She is Nicole Barker. She works for the state of New Mexico. 
encouraging people to travel there, and she does a very good job at it. So here is Nicole. And welcome to the Travel Show, Nicole. Thanks, Pauline. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy you're here because you are going to tell me about a an American state that I've never, ever been to. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it. I've been to all but four states, and New Mexico is one of them. So, so pretend I'm an alien who has just landed on the earth. How would you describe New Mexico to me? What are the facts about it that I need to know? Well, Pauline, it's funny that you should say, pretend you're an alien, because there is quite an alien scene here in New Mexico. But if you are landing here, I would share with you, um, we are the fifth largest state. We're nestled just um, south of Colorado, north of Mexico. Um, And our, our terrain really reflects our location, of course. So we have some of the most rugged alpine peaks in the country, but as you head down south, you go through all sorts of different scenery, you know, wild and um, forested mountain streams down to rolling white sand dunes, um, a really kind of unique geological formation that we have here our calderas. Um, we have 10 sunken volcanoes around the state. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. I was reading that you have the biggest temperature range in the United States that it, it goes to, it can go up to 122. Although I'm sure that, that uh, death Valley goes higher, but, uh, I guess just regular land, it can go from negative 50 to 122, not at the same time of year, of course. Oh, I believe that. We definitely have, depending where you are, all four seasons. Um, sometimes you can drive within the state, you know, in a couple days and experience all four seasons. Yeah. Now you said you're known for your aliens. That's an interesting thing to say. What does that mean? Well, in there was this Roswell incident. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day that now there is a whole alien festival around in the town of Roswell. That's um, in early July. It's our UFO festival. Well, that's fun. What, what do people do? Well, um, I think there are a lot of speakers um, who, uh-huh. who talk about, you know, sort of this, the, the, the theories and phenomenons around um, the Roswell incident and yeah, and just sort of celebrate, I think, the, the fun and the quirkiness of the UFO capital of the world. Yeah. Oh, wow. You're also known as the ballooning capital of the world. How did that get started in New Mexico? Do you know? Well, I'm not sure where and when it all began, but I do know that today the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta has got to be, if not 
the biggest balloon gathering in the world, certainly in North America. Um, and it's that particular um, coming together has been happening for the past 50 years because this October um, we are having our, our biggest fiesta around ballooning um, and we're aiming to break our own world record that we set oh. a couple years ago. So we're aiming to have more than 600, maybe 650 balloons there. And this is this is all sorts of different shapes of balloons. Um, it's nine days of special events, like these twilight glow-ups where the balloons are illuminated. Um, mm. It's a really special coming together. You say well, people bring their balloons from all over the country to fly them at these festivals. What do you mean by different shapes? Are they are they not all round or, or kind of that oval shape? Or are some in the shapes of animals and other types of entities. That's exactly right. Um, while the, the classic kind of, uh, I guess, teardrop shaped balloon is beautiful, you know, ascending into the sky, all sorts of different shapes show up. So animals, you know, characters, you know, from, from movies, um, perhaps classic cars kind of runs the gamut. Now, People who go to New Mexico, probably not during the festival, they can go up in balloons. How do they interact beyond just looking at the balloons at the festival? Right. So we, um, it all starts off before the sun rises each morning. Um, that's one of the most special times to be there as the, the ballooning teams are getting their balloons ready to, to, you know, get the green light if conditions allow to, to take off. Um, and the balloons then are lit up again. So you're seeing sort of this you know, hundreds, the scene of hundreds of balloons out in front of you um, being lit up to ascend. And you're right in the thick of it. Um, guests are really kind of right there next to these piloting teams as they prepare for takeoff. It's pretty exciting. Wow. Well, that sounds amazing. And I, I, we met at the International Media Marketplace, which is this big event for people in the travel industry. And I spoke to somebody from Gallup, New Mexico, which has a smaller but still as passionately attended uh, balloon festival. And he told me that there's no better pe people to party with <laughs> than balloonists, that they know how to get high. Not, I'm not saying anything about drugs. I'm just saying that they, they really, really apparently are some of the most fun people in the world. Have you ever seen the social scene around ballooning? Well, not firsthand, but I have met some balloonists who, who are quite the characters. I can't imagine that they wouldn't be um, a, nothing but a total blast to, to hang out with. Yeah. That's, so New Mexico is one of the youngest states in the Union. It only joined the United States in 1912, and that could be because of, of racism. You know, it, it was a largely Hispanic state. And today, it still has a big, big Hispanic culture. In fact, you're as likely to hear Spanish in many parts of New Mexico as you are to hear English. How do visitors interact with that unique culture? Oh, that's that's so true, Pauline. And it's really interesting that we are one of the newest states, um, but we have this really long, you know, legacy and, and heritage 
from before we were officially a state. Um, Mm. Today, visitors, um, there's so many ways that visitors can learn or experience um, New Mexico's unique multicultural offerings. Um, And whether it just be, you know, ordering um, some great food, um, practicing your Spanish if you want to, really immersing yourself in the the galleries and the markets and um, the guided experiences that are available. Uh If I, if I can, I'd love to tell you about this sort of this mix we have. It's, as you mentioned, um, largely Hispanic. Um, Uh The first Spanish settlers did arrive in what's today, you know, New Mexico back in the 16th century. And of course we have um, at that time and long before that, um, our indigenous tribes and nations um, and pueblos established here. And then of course we have um, a a strong American West cultural influence here as well. Yeah. And so that, that uh, I, I hate the term melting pot because it really doesn't work. It's not cultures melting into one another. It's more of a tapestry. It's people living side by side and influencing one another and being more vibrant because of that side to side relationship. Uh, In terms of the indigenous cultures there, there's going to be a big anniversary this year, right? There is. Um, this is our 100th anniversary um, of our indigenous, what we're calling our indigenous celebration. And that's the um, the centennial of the Santa Fe Indian Art Market. It's been held since 1921. We took a pause last year, um, as many yeah. as many would understand. And we have some new galleries opening. This is celebrating everything having to do with indigenous art, um, contemporary, all the way back to traditional textiles, um, pottery, and of course, painting, and it runs the gamut. But that's not the only big birthday we have this year. Um, As you mentioned, um, there's a lot happening in Gallup, which is the northwest part of the state. Um, This is the, our 50th anniversary I'm sorry, it's our 100th anniversary of um, the Gallup Intertribal Indian Ceremonial. And this is like one of the oldest, longest running kind of celebrations of Native American heritage. Um, And it's going to feature all sorts of um, experiences from Navajo song and dance, a full powwow, film screenings, more art. Um, so two big birthdays celebrating our indigenous culture here in New Mexico this year. And with the second one, I actually met somebody from Gallup at the uh, International Media Marketplace. He was telling me it's not just Native Americans from New Mexico who come to this. People come from Canada. They come from all of the U.S. states. I mean, this is a major, major event. Um, do folks who don't have Native American heritage feel comfortable? Or is this really for the folks who are Native American? It's it's both, to be honest. It, it truly is for and by Indigenous people. Um, and from everything I can tell, um, there is a, a long um, open invitation for people from all walks of life to come and, and learn and respectfully, um, you know, interact um, with these 
various different Native American cultures that will be available for 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 immersing oneself in in Gallup and this August. Yeah. Oh, it sounds great. It'd be hot in August, right? Oh, it it will probably be pretty blazing. <laughs> oh well, you know it should still be exciting. Uh, speaking about blazing, I also read that New Mexico grows the most chili peppers in the United States. And that's a reason a lot of people come to New Mexico. It's for your incredibly unique uh, uh, cuisine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Um, New Mexico chili is is really, I think, the, the backbone of our cuisine. Um, and it can be quite spicy, but it can also just be really a delicious flavor. We have lots of different varieties that are grown all across the state. Um, most folks have probably heard of Hatch Green Chili. Um, and an interesting note is that our chili can be red or green. It's the same varieties, just it, it matters when it's picked. And and then yeah. we roast them fresh right out on the street. You can be walking down and smelling this intoxicating um, wow. fragrance of chilies being roasted. Um, and we put it... We love to eat green chili in everything from green chili cheeseburgers um, to our breakfast burritos, and green chili stew is another staple. I was reading that that uh, New Mexico probably invented the breakfast breakfast burrito. There's there's some controversy around that. Do you think uh, your state can claim that? Oh, I would love to claim that. I'm not sure if we invented it, but I can vouch for our uh, what we call our breakfast burrito byway. We have locations all across the state where you can, when you're on your self-guided road trip, stop and, and try different versions of our breakfast burritos. And then you can determine for yourself which one's your favorite. Do you think a road trip is the best way to see New Mexico? Absolutely. Um, you know, you have a couple different options. You could go to one location and really immerse yourself and, and, and stay there if that's your travel style um, and dig into the various, you know, culinary and, and wellness and outdoor or um, art offerings. Or you can drive yourself around the state. Um, we have all sorts of different um, opportunities to experience totally different um, terrains and activities. So I think probably the best way to really get a taste of New Mexico is to make sure you visit a few different locations. Before I let you go, how has the skiing been this year? Well, we just had quite a big storm hit us last weekend. I think uh, 37 inches at Towson wow. Valley. Yeah, and and um, our mountains are are open and bustling, and we're just hoping for for a lot more storms this year, just like the rest of the states. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been such a delight speaking with you, Nicole. Thank you so much for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Thanks, Pauline. My pleasure. I thought I'd end today's show with some very interesting news from the world of cruising. Uh, much of the world has been easing pandemic restrictions lately, with European countries dropping strict entry requirements, governor after governor announcing the end of indoor mask mandates. 
But the Center for Disease Control appears to be bucking the trend when it comes to cruise ships. This week, that federal agency released guidelines for its new voluntary COVID-19 program for cruise ships operating in U.S. waters, and the protocols are far more extensive than most in the industry expected. Note that Unlike previous cruise-related pronouncements issued by the CDC during the pandemic, the agency's latest framework is not mandatory for cruise ship companies to adopt. Instead, cruise lines have until February 18th to decide to either opt in or out of the voluntary program. But as of, of this time, 20 ships have so far joined the CDC's revised protocols. And if history is any guide, the majority of the remaining vessels whose owners sail in the U.S. waters will likely follow, in part because cruise ship companies will want to reassure customers that COVID safety is a top priority. Now, that doesn't mean the companies are exactly thrilled with what the CDC has come up with, though. Among the most contentious parts of the new guidance is a requirement that anyone who tests positive for the virus be immediately quarantined, with the possibility of having to remain in isolation for five days on a ship with a high percentage of vaxxed people on board, and up to 10 days on ships carrying higher numbers of unvaccinated crew and passengers. And that's a big change from the CDC's current guidelines, which allow all those who test positive to leave quarantine after five days without additional tests. It's also different from what many European nations are doing. Denmark, for example, no longer requires its citizens to isolate at all after receiving positive tests. Now, The cruise line's voluntary quarantine requirements affect not just the passengers or crew with the positive test, but also all of the person's close contacts as well. I believe that's another change, and that's a big one. That could mean a lot of people quarantining. The application of the new protocols is very, very confusing. It's unclear, for example, how a 10 day quarantine would work on a cruise that lasts only a week or less? Would the affected passengers be expected to remain in isolation on the ship even after the voyage ends? Uh, And what about those who get a false positive? Currently, the rules seem to imply that there will not be an opportunity to retest before quarantine. There are also changes to the designations the CDC is giving to cruise ships concerning how to alert the public about the vaccination levels to expect on board. Ships that receive the highest ranking are going to be called vaccination standard of excellence, and they must have a 95% vaccination rate for those on board. The rate will be measured not only by initial doses, and this is another big change, but also by how many passengers and crew are quote-unquote up-to-date with their inoculations, which means boosters. Highly vaccinated ships, that's the second type of designation, will be those ships that have 95% of passengers who are vaccinated but not boosted. And not highly vaccinated, that's the third designation, will be assigned to sailings with less than 95% of vaccinated passengers and crews. 
Here's where it gets really, really complicated. If you're on a ship that receives the vaccination standard of excellence, that's the top tier, and you become symptomatic and you test positive for COVID-19, you're going to be allowed to leave quarantine after five days if you've been fever-free for 24 hours and if you get a negative antigen test. But if you're on the other classes of ships, the isolation period is 10 days, which is really long. Uh, especially do you get to leave the ship and do your isolation elsewhere should the voyage end? That's an open question. So this is going to be an interesting problem for the cruise lines. They issued a statement decrying this latest uh, governance from the uh, CDC. Uh, They say, regrettably, Upon initial review, the latest CDC guidance appears out of step with the actual public health conditions on cruise ships and unnecessary in light of societal trends away from more restrictive measures. That's what their statement reads. So will a lot of the cruise lines decide to opt out? I think the optics are going to be too bad for them to do that. Uh, because people will be able to see pretty much immediately if a ship has opted in or out. The CDC has a color-coded chart of each cruise ship's COVID infection record, and those that opt out of this program will be covered colored in gray, which I I think will look too bad. I I, I think it's, it's, it's a black eye. Well, I don't think cruise lines will go for this. So what does this mean? Does it mean that the CDC thinks that cruising is too dangerous an activity? Possibly. And, you know, those in the cruise industry would say that because cruise ships are legally required to report outbreaks with far more diligence and transparency than other sectors in the travel industry, uh, it, it looks like COVID is worse on cruise ships than other venues like hotels, theme parks, airlines, etc. That's what the cruise line industry is saying. But the fact is, cruise ships have a higher population density than even the most crowded cities. A number of academic papers have noted this, and it's people-to-people interactions that spread the coronavirus. So even though the cruise lines have been very diligent about creating protocols to try and keep people safe, it may be that just the nature of cruising, the nature of having, you know, dozens of crew members in one room and then a lot of double rooms next to one another uh, in a boat, uh, and then having all of those people mingle and mix in the confined spaces of, of a boat for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, it may be that that is just not a an ideal situation right now with covid. So what's my advice? My advice is not to listen to me about this. My advice is if you're thinking of doing a cruise, it's going to be a great deal right now. They really need passengers uh and maybe consider talking to your doctor. If you've had covid and recovered from it, if you have a strong immune system, maybe you take the deal and have a great vacation. If you don't have the best of health, though, this may not be the time to cruise. Only you can decide that. All right, that's it for me this week. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. 